And welcome again. If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount today. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 12. Keep your Bible open in front of you. There's quite a bit for us this morning. Um, This passage begins with a a very well-known verse called the Golden Rule. And then it launches into Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a series of warnings about what's at stake. Um, Some of us uh, have known people, some of us do know people that we love very much who are not living in the way that Jesus talks about here. And we are very concerned about that and troubled by their lives. I'm praying for many of these people in your lives. Um, Some of us hear warnings like this in the New Testament And they're very terrifying. And there's something about these warnings that are meant to scare us. They are warnings, and they are meant for us. Uh, But as always, I'd be very happy to talk with any of you afterwards. Uh, If you hear this and it really freaks you out and wondering if you're really saved, uh, you can always come talk to me. I'd always be happy to talk. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 12. This is Jesus talking. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've promised your blessing and your mercy and your presence upon those who tremble at your word. We do tremble, Lord, to hear what's at stake and how we respond to Jesus. We ask for the humility we need, the clarity we need to hear and to understand what you're saying to us so that we might find the narrow gate and walk upon the road that leads to life. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our merciful brother. Amen. If I cannot join them, 
I will rise above them. And if I cannot rise above them, I will destroy them. I have been trying to join and be accepted among the beautiful people, popular people, all my life. But it was to no avail. They have always treated me like scum. That is a very short part of a very long manifesto from a young man who in 2014 went on a shooting spree at the University of California at Santa Barbara, very close to where I grew up. Very few people, thankfully, take such bitterness and self-pity to such horrific lengths. But if we are studying history or paying attention to other people or ourselves with open eyes, we can see that this tendency to fixate on how we've been mistreated is common to all of us. Parents are well acquainted with the cry that it's not fair. Many adults, some of us, drift through their entire lives angry and hurt over what others have or have not done for them. We have a basic sense of how we should be treated and we're quick to notice when we're not. The question is how you respond. What will you do with the knowledge of how you should be treated? This young man, Elliot Roger, responded with destruction, with murderous hatred. What do you do with that knowledge? Jesus is concluding his Sermon on the Mount by telling us how to respond. This is his famous golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is summarizing his entire ethical teaching about how we should live that we've been looking at over the last few months. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is mainly concerned with. This verse is something of a conclusion to the whole thing. It's an echo of something at the beginning of his teaching where he said that he was coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. So you have this kind of bookends at either end where Jesus is talking about everything that the law and prophets were saying he's come to teach us and to fulfill for us. But this final concluding summary, the golden rule, it's then followed by this series of somber warnings about what's really at stake in how you respond to Jesus and his teaching. Uh, Last week in our new members class, I talked about why our church preaches through whole books of the Bible. Part of that is so that uh, you all... Uh, don't have to get me focusing on whatever I feel like talking about or the things that I find interesting or the axes that I want to grind uh, or keeps me from skipping over hard things. If it was totally up to me, today I would be preaching on the golden rule and we would all feel nice and warm and fuzzy about being loving and nice and then I would skip over all this stuff about hell and we'd move on to Jesus doing miracles or something like that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus gives us the golden rule and then he warns us. He tells us, here's what's at stake over how you respond. If I had to summarize the whole passage, I'd say this. You have to travel the painful road of serving other people in service to Jesus. That's the golden rule. The warnings are giving you reasons 
that you should do that, reasons you should take it so seriously. So first, the golden rule, this call to serving other people, this summary of his ethical teaching. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. At first glance, this is kind of deceptive. It sounds very simple, sounds very easy, sounds nice and warm and fuzzy. Sounds like being loving. People in our culture love to talk about love. But notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, whatever you wish that other people would do to you, demand from them. Take it from them. Manipulate it out of them. Notice also, Jesus does not say, whatever you wish that others would do to you, you should feel sorry for yourself about those things they're not doing. You should nurse your bitterness about it. You should take revenge over it. And notice that Jesus is stating everything positively. He's saying what you should do, not what you should not do. Jesus does not say, whatever you don't want people to do to you, well, just don't do that to them. That's true, and that's a good uh, rule to follow. But it leaves us plenty of room to keep our distance from other people. It leaves us plenty of room to be withdrawn from other people. It's another way of saying, I just want to be left alone. But Jesus is calling us to something far deeper, something far more difficult. He says, whatever, all the kinds of things that you want other people to be doing to you and for you, Jesus says, you must go out of your way to do all those things for everybody, whoever they are. It's totally comprehensive. And so just like we want other people to care about us, we want other people to care for us the way that we want people to help us and to check in with us. We want people to initiate with us and ask how we're doing. We want people to give to us. We want people to be gentle and patient with us. Jesus is saying we should be doing all of that for other people, no matter what we're getting out of it, no matter how they've first shown us that maybe they're worthy of receiving this kind of treatment. This does not mean that everything that we want from other people is always a good thing to want. In our world, there is a great deal of evil and foolishness that's promoted in the name of being loving and accepting and compassionate. You can see here that the ultimate standard for how we treat other people, for how we love other people, is God's Word. Jesus grounds this teaching in God's Word. He says He's calling us to fulfill the law and the prophets. That means God's written Word. Jesus says, you are rightly expecting certain things from other people uh, and you should be doing them for them insofar as those things are laid out for you in God's word. And so because this is so comprehensive, it's so convicting. It's so hard. We talk so glibly in our world about love, like it's the easiest thing in the world. But the reality is we find it so easy to demand things from other people to feel sorry for ourselves, to limit what we're going to do for other people. I'll do this much, but no, no farther. We find it so easy to be angry and jealous about other people. And so if we're honestly facing this summary commandment, you can't help but experience the kinds of things that Jesus began the sermon by blessing. Remember this? All the way back in the Beatitudes... Jesus begins this whole set of teaching about how you should live, first by blessing poverty of spirit, first by blessing mourning over your sin, mourning over your relationships, 
blessing lowliness, blessing the hunger for righteousness. Jesus says, if you are characterized by those things, you are living under God's blessing. And so Jesus' teaching here, even this golden rule, it does underscore for us how deeply sinful we really are. It underscores how spiritually bankrupt we are. How many of us really live this way? How many of us really treat other people this way? It shows us how needy we are for God's mercy and grace. That's a lot of what Jesus has just been teaching us in the passage just before, where he told us to be constantly asking and seeking and knocking. It's this expression of utter dependence on the Father. How much we need Him, how much we need His help. But it's in and through this lowly poverty of spirit that you find real strength and real power to actually live out what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is underscoring our sin, and by doing that, He's moving us into a deeper poverty of spirit. But he's also, and he's ultimately calling us to obey. We never obey perfectly, but he is calling us to obey. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Our obedience is never the basis of God's acceptance or love, but it is the evidence of the kind of dependence on the Father where God's blessing can be found. I'll say that again. Our obedience is not the basis of God's love, but it is the evidence of the kind of dependence on the Father where the Father's blessing can be found. This is a hard passage. There are very serious, somber calls here to obey, to stop playing games with God. And if we're going to hear it rightly, we need to remember that the foundation of Christian obedience is that God has mercifully accepted us and received us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're going to do something later down the road that God needs from us, but just because He wants to give it to us. And so as hard as it is, as much failure and weakness as we face, Jesus is truly calling us to this loving service to other people, all in loving service to Him. By the end of the passage, Jesus keeps talking about himself, how important he is, how we must obey him. So that's why Jesus now shifts to warning us about what's at stake if we don't actually do so. Uh, First reason, first warning, we have to serve other people in service to Jesus because it's the only way to life. It's the only way to life. Verses 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. The gate's wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus is saying that there are two and only two gates, two ways to live. Uh, Each one of these gates leads to their own road. These two roads lead to two different destinations. There are no other options for me or for you or for anybody who has ever lived. Jesus says you must strive to enter through the narrow gate that puts you on a hard road that leads to eternal life with God in heaven. Jesus says not many people find this little gate and that once you're on it, it's full of suffering and sacrifice. Constant 
dependence on God rather than yourself or your idols that you find so appealing and comforting. Serving other people, even your enemies, rather than yourself. Contentment and joy and generosity in the midst of weakness and lack and suffering. All these things are painful and costly. In many ways, they are deeply lonely and humiliating. But the road that leads to eternal destruction in hell is an easy road. There are a lot of people on it, and it all feels so normal to them. They look around and they say, everybody else is walking on this road. I feel good about it. We don't want to be fanatics, do we? We don't want to be fundamentalists, do we? This path that we are on, it's so tolerant, it's so accepting, it's so compassionate. I mean, look around. Look at all these degrees that all of us have. Look at what experts we all are. Look at how happy our relationships are at all the money we have and how much fun we're having and how good it all feels. But Jesus says that the reason that you should give up everything to get on the hard road of suffering is because of where it's going. Each one of us is going to live forever. I'll say that again. Every single one of us, every person you run into, is going to live forever. The most important decisions you make in this life are those that determine how you will spend the next life. The most important questions are not, what do I think of God? But rather, what does God think of me? Not, what does God owe me? But rather, what do I owe God? Eternal destruction in hell or eternal life in heaven. All through this passage and all through his teaching, Jesus warns about hell. By some estimates, he talks about hell twice as often as he does heaven. He talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Is he trying to ruin our lives? Is he being mean and harsh? No. Jesus is warning us. He's warning our world because he loves us. Because the reality is that there is something deeply wrong with every one of us so that we are now bound for a never-ending world of sadness and isolation and bitterness, no matter how much we might wish or feel that that were not true. You can ignore and dismiss the Bible's teaching on hell if you want, but please realize that by doing so, you are ignoring and dismissing Jesus himself. Jesus leaves us no room to pick and choose the bits about him that we find easy or comfortable. He says the narrow gate leads to the only kind of life that ultimately matters. Life with God, life in God, your maker. Only Jesus can give that life to you because only Jesus can deal with your sin that makes you so guilty before God. That's what Jesus came to do on the cross and in his resurrection. You cannot deal with your own sin. You cannot make yourself unguilty. 
even trying to do it on your own, no matter how piously or fervently you do it, even just trying to do it, is actually an insulting rejection of God, an insulting rejection of what He's offering to you. So we have to live under and for Jesus. We have to live in dependence upon Him because this is the narrow gate. This painful road is the only one that leads to eternal life. That's the first warning. Here's the second one. We have to stay on the road of serving other people in service to Jesus because there's a great danger of deception. There is a great danger of deception. Look at verses 15 to 23. So first, Jesus warns us about being deceived by other people. Other people. He says, you have to be on your guard against false prophets. They might look like sheep, but really they are vicious wolves bent on destruction. So here, Jesus in the New Testament elsewhere, they repeatedly warn about false teachers worming their way into the church or even sometimes arising from within it. It's a warning about the deception that can come from those who look and talk like Christian leaders and teachers. None of them ever come to you and say, Good morning. I'm a false teacher. I am here to lead you away from Jesus. They don't do that. They are probably saying lots of true and biblical things and their lives might be very impressive, very admirable. Uh, They might be saying only true things. Everything they're saying could be true. But if they're leaving out lots of other true things, they're actually misleading you away from Jesus. Lots of people are taken in by them. And so it can be hard to stand up and say, hey, what's going on? This person is a false prophet. Why are we all listening to this person? It can be hard to see that they're actually wrong and even malicious. And so Jesus says, be careful. Watch out. Don't assume it could never happen here. He says you can judge them, you can figure out who they are by their fruits, just like you can figure out whether or not something is a fig tree by whether or not it produces figs. Uh, These false prophets might put on a pretty convincing act for a while, but in the end, Jesus says, they will suffer God's judgment, just like a tree being cut down and thrown onto the burn pile. But even before then, most of the time, you can eventually tell who they are by what they're producing or what they're not producing. He says, first you can see it in the fruit of their teaching. Are they actually teaching Jesus as the only way to life? A lot of teachers today, a lot of churches, a lot of people claiming to be pastors saying, well, is Jesus really the only way? We don't know. Does their teaching lead people to depend on Jesus? Does it lead them to depend on themselves? Are they teaching the Bible, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Or are they using the Bible to teach their own ideas? Are they using the Bible to add or take away from what God has actually said in it? A lot of people do that. But it's not just an issue of looking at the fruit of their teaching. You can also see it in the fruit of their lives. Uh, Not just greed and sensuality. Those are always uh, attached to false teachers in the New Testament. Lots of warnings. Hey, these guys are trying to take advantage of you. They're going to teach you and they're going to live in really wild and crazy ways that you're not supposed to. But you can also see it in things like pride, self-righteousness. What you don't see in their lives are the things that Jesus blesses in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, meekness, mercy, 
and peacemaking. So Jesus says there's a danger of being deceived by other people, so be careful, watch out for them. But he also says there's a danger of deceiving ourselves. There's a danger of deceiving ourselves. Look at verses 21 to 23. These are some of the most haunting verses in the entire Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there will be many people who think they are Christians, but are really not. They're focused on Jesus. They talk a lot about Jesus. They pray to Jesus. They have all kinds of spectacular and impressive accomplishments and all their work for Jesus. But in reality, they don't know Jesus. And so they don't really obey Him. Now, Jesus does not deny that they really did do all of these miracles, that they really did cast out demons, that they really did have a huge impact and a huge following. Jesus doesn't say, no, no, you're making all that up. I mean, this is all assumed. Of course you did all these things. It's entirely possible to do all these things by the power of the devil, even if you think you're doing it by and for Jesus. They might appear to be honoring Jesus with these great ministries, with all of their busyness, with all of their extra discipline and numbers and results. They're the first ones to get to church every week and they're the last ones to leave. They're willing to do all the really hard jobs that nobody else wants to do. But in reality, they're actually rejecting Jesus. There's parts of their lives where they're saying, you can't touch this part of my life. This part is for me. I'm not going to do what you say in these areas of my life, but I'll do lots of other things in all these other parts of my life. And so Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Martin Luther said this, No one is deeper in hell than the great servants of God. There are a lot of pastors in hell. It's a sobering warning for us. In a society that measures success by results, by size, by how impressive and impactful something is, uh, Americans in particular... We are drawn to things that are spectacular and big. And sadly and ominously, this extends also to many churches today, where the measure is not what's true or what's good or what's faithful, but rather what works, what gets noticed. How does it make me feel? And in the individual Christian life, we have a tendency to look for the exciting and the impressive and the powerful. And we get discouraged when we don't see or experiencing it in ourselves. When I was a younger Christian, I would go to church and I'd see people crying and waving their hands around and looking really emotional. And I thought, wow, I must not really know God. Those people look like they really know Him. There are times, it's true, there are times when God works powerfully through us and around us. There are individuals through church history who have had a really mighty impact in what they've done. But for nearly all of us, the Christian life is slow and plodding 
and quiet. Here is Luther again, commenting on how we tend to gravitate towards extra commandments, extra rules, extra achievements and disciplines beyond the things actually that Jesus is saying. He says, we're going to have our hands full in keeping these commandments, in practicing gentleness, patience, love toward our enemies, chastity, kindness, whatever other virtues they might include. Such works, however, are not important in the eyes of the world, for they are not unusual or showy. They're just common, everyday duties toward our neighbor with no show about them. And so we have to be careful. It's not just that there are false teachers out there somewhere who want to deceive us. We can also deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves into making the Christian life all about what's big and powerful and yet neglect to actually know Jesus. Neglect to actually obey Him, not just in most parts of your life, but in all parts of your life. And so we have to stay on the painful road of serving other people in service to Jesus, first of all, because it's the only way to life. Second of all, because there's a great danger of deception. But now, last of all, Jesus says, verses 24 to 27, because it secures you from destruction. It secures you from destruction. He says that those who hear his words and obey them are like a wise man who builds his house on bedrock. We've got a lot of bedrock on this side of Austin, not so much on the other side of Austin. Those who hear Jesus' words but don't obey them, he says they're like a stupid man who builds his house on sand. You have two houses, perhaps same exact materials, same floor plan, same construction. They might look exactly the same. The same storm batters both houses, but of course the house that's on the sand gets wiped out. The final haunting words of the Sermon on the Mount. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Again, it's a warning about the eternal destruction that's coming for those who foolishly refuse the stability and security that you can only find in God's Son, Jesus. We need to beware of what foundation we're building our lives upon. No matter how calm and stable and easy things might feel right now. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life because only Jesus provides the way for God to come to us and for us to come to God. So it's a warning, probably one that some of us this morning need to hear very somberly. But it's also an encouragement. It's also an encouragement. Jesus is promising you that if you build your life on Him, if you rely on Him and His Father in needy dependence, poverty of spirit, Jesus promises that you will survive not just the storms of this life, but that you will survive the great and final storm of God's judgment beyond the grave. Jesus does not promise us a particularly successful or pleasurable or easy or impressive life. He says, you will survive. When the storm has passed, you will still be standing. Might not sound like very much, might not look like very much, but it's precious. You will survive. 
What are you building your life on? Are Jesus' words, his promises, his encouragements, his commands, even his warnings, are they your foundation? Heeding Jesus' words means, first of all, constant dependence on our gracious Father. But Jesus has also told us this morning that it also means serving other people in the way that we would like for them to be serving us, no matter how little they deserve it or what we're getting out of it. That is not how the world works. It's not dependent on the Father in spiritual poverty. It does not look to serve other people regardless of how they respond or what they deserve. And so following Jesus means stooping down and squeezing through a narrow gate that most people are overlooking or mocking. It means stumbling along a lonely, bumpy road full of suffering and sacrifice while the world around us cruises by. So, of course, we are prone to being deceived, prone to being deceived from without and within by those without and our voices within that tell us it doesn't have to be so hard. You don't have to give up so much. Surely God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? But Jesus' words, Jesus' way, not least his pronouncement of God's blessing on the weak and needy, Jesus' way is the way to life. So build your house on the rock because the storm is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great abundant mercy toward the needy and the weak. Help us to see how poor we really are. Forgive us for the ways that we think we can build our lives on our own foundations. Help us to build on Jesus, most especially his kindness and his mercy. And as we do that, help us to truly obey in all parts of our lives, not just some of it. Keep us from the hypocrisy that thinks that being religious is enough to buy you off or to trick other people. Help us to live earnestly and honestly, no matter how painful it might be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.